my, there we go. Fantastic. Good. Well, once again, we're so glad that you're with us. If you're with us by live stream, we're so glad that, that you are. Um, such a difficult time for so many here in our local region and really, I guess, throughout the South. And so uh, we continue to pray and uh, root for the various services who are working so hard to get our utilities restored. And um, so, but we're glad with all this is going on that you've taken the time uh, to be with us today. And so uh, with that, we're going to continue our study that we began a few weeks ago. And this is my attempt to represent to you uh, the content from a fantastic book written by uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who was chief rabbi of Great Britain for some years, retired some years ago, and actually passed away just this last year. The book is entitled Not in God's Name, and I fully, I totally encourage you to, to get the book. You'll get a much fuller presentation of his thoughts uh, from the book than what I'm able to present here. And also, if you're an audiobook person, if you have exercise time or windshield time, uh, when you're able to enjoy audiobooks, I highly recommend the audio in this particular case because he reads his own book. And so it's really quite a gift to the world to hear Rabbi Sachs uh, reading his book just for you. At least that's the way I consider it, that he is reading it just to me. Um, in this book, Rabbi Sachs is basically asking the question, how is it that otherwise normal, non-psychotic people can arrive at a place where they could hate in the name of the God of love, where they could commit cruelty in the name of the God of compassion, where they could practice escalatory revenge in the name of the God of mercy, where they could kill in the name of of the God of life. What is the process by which, again, otherwise ordinary normal people come to that place? That's basically the question of the book. And I found the book compelling when I first encountered it uh, back last year or so. Uh, and, and even from the initial exposure to the book, I thought, man, it'd be phenomenal for us to do a study uh, of it together. But I, even after having that thought, I'd kind of just put it on the back burner. And then the events of January the 6th this year occurred at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. And on one level, uh, these events were, of course, tragic, but not altogether surprising. And not to wax too philosophically and detached here, but just to say, you know, after all, this is the kind of thing that humans do in century after century across all cultures uh, throughout history as we know it. But at the same time, through another lens... Uh, those events of January 6th were deeply disturbing. Um, many of us were struck by the presence in the midst of all of that destruction and even, even death now, as we know. In the midst of all that, there were these banners and signs among the violent mob portraying the name of Jesus in various ways. And it seemed as if, at least for some of those folks, and we don't pretend that everyone involved in those events at the U.S. Capitol shared all the same ideas and ideologies, but it seemed as if, at least for some of those people, they felt as if their destructive and even violent behavior was somehow sanctioned by Jesus. And suddenly, after taking all that in, I guess to summarize, suddenly I felt 
compelled all over again that the content of this book by Rabbi Sachs, even though it was written some years ago, is more important now than ever. And this material is not only important like for those other people out there. No, this, this is important stuff for us. And so that's really kind of the, the background and the context for why I feel like this is important. And, and I just want to say, like I said before, I'm very excited about um, today's presentation in particular, uh, which as some of you have been around uh, know, that's probably the kiss of death, means this will be the worst sermon of all time. But I'm particularly excited about, about this um, phase of, of the argument or the flow of thought, I guess you should say. So I want to say one more thing before we move into the specifics. Um, as we cover these waypoints along the way in this exploration, I want to ask you to do two things. I want to ask you to be open, and I want to ask you to be creative. And here's what I mean by that. By openness, I mean, I think this is an invitation to see new realities that maybe we haven't seen before, not just today, but in uh, subsequent weeks of our study, um, to see new realities that we maybe haven't seen before, or at least recognized before, um, and also this represents an opportunity to think in new ways. Um, and by creativity, what I mean is this. Um, it's simply to say that what we're covering here, this is an art, not a science. In many ways, this is an exploration of the dark side of the human soul. And as you know, that can be a tricky space to travel. The categories here that we're talking about are not neat and clean. There's flexibility in these descriptions. What we're trying to do is sketch out a portrait, and sometimes in admittedly general terms, so that you can then take this raw material and recognize these phenomena in new places, in new expressions, sometimes expressed in more overt ways and sometimes expressed in more subtle ways. And that requires Creativity, if I could put it that way, it's kind of a dark form of creativity, but nevertheless, that's the best way I can think of it. Okay, so with that, uh, today, let's take the next step. Um, let's talk about dualism. Here's a quote to kind of get us started. Exaggerate each feature until man is metamorphosized into beast, vermin, insect. Fill in the background with malignant figures from ancient nightmares, devils, demons, myrmidons of evil. When your icon of the enemy is complete, you'll be able to kill without guilt, slaughter without shame. Those words are written by Sam Keane in his book, Faces of the Enemy, written in 1986. Dualism. Let's start off. What do we mean? Well, formally speaking, at least on the, like, most commonly, what we mean by dualism is it is a belief that there are two deities running the world, standing over the world and running the world, two deities who are or which are more or less equal in their influence and, most importantly, who are diametrically opposite in terms of their benevolence, let's say. One of these deities is thought to be entirely good. The other deity is thought to be entirely evil. That's dualism. This idea, this belief that there are two deities uh, holding sway, holding influence over the earth and the affairs of earth. One entirely good, one entirely evil. That's dualism proper, let's say. Um, 
is dualism true? That's the common belief, and we'll talk about some examples of where it pops up. But first of all, before we go any further, let's just ask the question, is dualism true? And the short answer is no, it's not. Both Judaism and Christianity um, have and do formally reject dualism. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, it's called the Shema, the word hear in Hebrew, it's Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Lord is one. There is, in fact, one God. Christianity and Judaism and Islam, by the way, are referred to as monotheistic faiths, which means we believe that there is, in fact, one God. And yet, it's true that dualism can be traced through the centuries within both Judaism and Christianity. And, of course, I can't speak for Islam, but I'd be willing to bet that there are folks more familiar with that faith who could also find instances and examples of dualism within within Islam, either in hard or soft form. Um, And so what I want to say is that in all of the monotheistic faiths, that is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, um, despite our belief in only one God, even still... This phenomenon of dualism pops up again and again. And so it, deserve, it begs asking the question then, why? Why is it that dualism persists throughout history, at least for sure I can say within Judaism and Christianity? Um, and here's a couple of quotes. Dualism is what happens when cognitive dissonance becomes unbearable. When the world as it is, is simply too unlike the world as we believe it ought to be. So in other words, as a person of faith in one God who I know to be entirely good, then how is it that I come to a point where I can cope with the world as it is, painful, disappointing, sometimes depending on which people group you're tracing dualism through, uh, the, the, the people group who are on the bottom, who are the oppressed of the world. Well, how is it that dualism could pop up among uh, 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 that people who, conf- who profess one God? Um, one offered answer to that question is, well, when there's such a disconnect, when there's so much difficulty trying to reconcile my professed faith in a single God overall who is entirely and wholly good on the one hand, with at the same time difficulty, disappointment, brutality in life. How can I reconcile those two? And there are times, historically speaking, and I'll talk about a couple of examples, when it's as if, it seems as if, people say, well, the the way that we reconcile this is is to suppose that there is another equal and opposite deity who is, in fact, wreaking havoc in the world. Here's another quote by Jeffrey Russell. He says it like this, Dualism denied the unity and omnipotence of God in order to preserve his perfect goodness. And so you can see where the thought is uh, there. And again, historically, when you look back, again, both within Christianity and Judaism, this is exactly what happened. Um, dualism actually appeared within both Judaism and Christianity during periods right around the turn of the first millennium that were so difficult that it, 
It's as if it became easier, for some at least, to attribute the sufferings of the world to some evil godlike force rather than to try to integrate their reality as experienced with their belief in one God. Uh, right around just, just prior to the turn of the first millennium, there were groups both in Judaism and Christianity who uh, subscribed to dualism. You may be familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the most important ar archaeological discoveries, certainly um, in, in the last century. Um, as researchers have, have dug into and dug through these Dead Sea Scrolls, the picture and the story of the community who left these scrolls has become more and more clear uh, in and around Qumran. They're sometimes referred to as the Essenes who left these ancient texts who were dis uh, discovered about the middle of last century. Um, and what we've come to know about the Qumran community is that they were a sect within Judaism who were dualists. Uh, they, they subscribed formally, overtly, to dualism, which may be one reason why their texts were hidden away, because they, were, they subscribed to a theology that wasn't accepted by Judaism proper. Um, another important discovery uh, was what are sometimes known as the Gnostic Gospels. Um, they're a group of Christian texts uh, uh, held by a group who are referred to as the Nag Hammadi sect. Uh, and this is an important dis archaeological discovery as well. And what we know about this group is that this is a group of Christians who subscribe to dualism, which again might explain why their texts were buried. The Gnostic Gospels, you may be familiar with some of these texts, the, the Apocalypse of Paul, the Gospel of Thomas, and so on. Uh, these people, this is a, a sect of Christians, Coptic Christians, who subscribed to dualism. And it's, it is not insignificant uh, that these two groups appeared both within both Judaism and Christianity uh, during the historic time that they did. Um, Judaism was going through a very difficult time when the Qumran community pulled itself aside and moved out into the wilderness to practice their faith in isolation, um, and you can see it was during a time when they were ruled over and oppressed by the Romans. It was a miserable time uh, for the Jewish people, even while holding their beliefs in God's coming redemption, and it was so slow to come, seemed as if it would never come, and so you can see, I guess, in trying to extend the greatest empathy toward them, how they might eventually succumb to the pressure to say, well, you know, must be some other evil deity doing all this. Same thing among the Christians. You know, if you think about it, after the resurrection of Jesus and the proclamation, the belief that Jesus was returning soon to establish his full and final kingdom in the earth, and then year after year after year goes by, and not only did things not get better for the believers in Jesus, things got worse under the increasing oppression, first from the Jewish establishment, and then later as they expanded throughout the Roman Empire, oppression and persecution by the Romans. And so you can see why perhaps a group like the Nag Hammadi sect, might succumb to the pressure and buckle under the pressure to adopt dualism. Of course, one of the most uh, well-known uh, teachers of dualism within Christianity, within the early church, um, was a teacher named Marcion. He lived from 85 uh, A.D. to 160 A.D. And Marcion taught that actually, in his case, he, he taught that that there was, it wasn't the supreme God as revealed in Christ who created the world. It was, a, it was a subordinate God who created the physical world as we know it with all of its pain and 
suffering and so on. Uh, and then the true God uh, was revealed to us in Christ. Well, eventually Marcion's teaching were formally rejected by the church. And so we've gone through these periods, but unfortunately, um, a mild form of dualism still has a habit of reappearing among us even still today. How many of you have heard the phrase uh, where someone in, in speech or in a blog article or whatever, or somebody will say, uh, or somebody will contrast the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament? It can be seen that this is a mild form of dualism because the reality is the confession of the church proper, the Christian church, is that there's only one God. There's the same God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. Rabbi Sachs tells a great story. There's a well-known atheist, um, Richard Dawkins, who wrote a book entitled The God Delusion, and Rabbi Sachs was invited to have several public dialogues with Dawkins uh, during the time, and it was a friendly, cordial relationship, although, of course, they disagreed very much on a variety of subjects. One time, Rabbi Sachs, um, uh, there's a segment of Dawkins' book uh, that begins. It says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably, arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. And uh, one time, Rabbi Sachs uh, remarked to Richard Dawkins, he said, well, uh, Mr. Dawkins, uh, you may be an atheist, but you are a Christian atheist and not a Jewish atheist. And, Mr. and Dawkins said, why is that? And he said, uh, Rabbi Sachs said, well, it's because outside of Christianity, there is no Old Testament. There's only the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> and actually what Rabbi Sachs is affirming is, is Orthodox Christianity. There is one God. There is no contrast between the God of the Old Testament versus some uh, imagined God of the New Testament. There is but one God. So dualism. Now, question, why does all this matter? How is it that this kind of background is relevant to our discussion about violence in the name of God. And here's why. It's because theology leads to anthropology, which is to say what we believe about God readily gives rise to what we believe about people. Too often it is the case that the belief that there are two deities, one good, the other evil, leads to the belief that there are two kinds of people, some good and others evil. So now we need to qualify a particular form of dualism, and it's what Rabbi Sachs calls pathological dualism, which had the word pathological, which means to say this is a diseased way of thinking. Pathological dualism is an extension of theological dualism, which sees humanity itself as being completely divided into two groups. One, the, you know, unquestionably, unimpeachably good, and the other, the irredeemably bad. Pathological dualism sees each person as either one or the other. Now, various groups have different ways of expressing this. Depending on the group you're listening to, you may be one of the saved or you one of the damned. You may be one of the redeemed or one of the lost. You may be one of the elect or one of the rejected. You may be a child of God or you may be a child of Satan. You may be a child of the light or a child of the darkness. Now, in truth, pathological dualism is not 
a theological phenomenon per se. It's about one's view of people, not one's view of God. But it's easy to see how theological dualism can lead to pathological dualism. It's easy to see how one's view of God or the cosmos can easily lead to pathological dualism. In fact, and I'll pause here just to point out, there has been some research that has shown Depending on what form it takes, there are some people who have a robust belief in Satan that allows them to have a more comfortable view of God, which is, in effect, a functional dualism. That when someone's idea of Satan grows to a point where his influence over the affairs of men are more or less equal to the influence of the one true God, well, what you have, while on paper I'm still a monotheist, functionally now, I'm thinking in dualistic terms. So, on and on it goes. And so it's easy to see how this kind of theological dualism, whether it's in a hard form or a soft form, can lead to pathological dualism. One's view of the spiritual world will always leak out into one's view of the physical world. And so all of that to say, theological dualism is a dangerous idea. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam We're surely correct in rejecting theological dualism, but pathological dualism is even still more dangerous. When pathological dualism takes root among a culture or a group, the stage is set for what we called a couple weeks ago altruistic evil. That is, for people to kill in the name of the God of life, for people to hate in the name of the God of life. Of love. But to get there, we've got to gear down um, and we're going to move away from theological terminology uh, and thought processes and we're going to turn to the area of human psychology. There are three phenomenon that can be seen as flowing from this poison fountain of pathological dualism. So we're going to talk about these three phenomenon this morning, we're going to talk about splitting and projection, we're going to talk about dehumanization, and we're going to talk about victimhood. First, splitting and projection. If you remember from your psychology class, perhaps in high school or in college, the very influential, the giant of the field of psychology, Sigmund Freud, uh, he was a champion of this concept and certainly others who followed after him, uh, developed this idea that's referred to as splitting and projection. And here's how it works on a personal individual level. A developing child learns first that there are good objects and there are bad objects. And then later in life, as a developing child continues to to develop, a healthy child learns that some things are both good and bad. As difficult and complex as that may be, a child can eventually learn that. For example, A growing child will eventually learn to grasp and even grapple with the reality that my father is both good and bad. I say grapple because this is not an easy thing uh, for any of us, but it is the normal, healthy reality that we grow into. There are many things in our world, even people, who are both good and bad. This is the healthy process of development. But for various reasons, some children never grow into this stage of maturity. Instead, some children become stuck 
in an earlier stage of development, seeing people as either good or bad. And also even healthy people, sometimes during periods of stress or anxiety, may revert to this earlier stage of human development, seeing people as either good or bad. Furthermore, it becomes especially problematic when this sort of dualism is turned inward on the self. No one wants to conclude uh, that he himself is completely bad. And so when this person identifies some aspect of himself that they are ashamed of or that they see as entirely bad, there are mechanisms in certain instances where we deny this reality on the inside of ourselves by splitting. That can't be me. I can't acknowledge that quality within myself. That's not me. This is called, by psychology researchers, this is called splitting. And its companion behavior is projection. That is to say, we project onto others what we deny within ourselves, right? So an example would be, I'm not being selfish here. You're the one who's being selfish. Okay, that's a simple example, but that's what we're talking about. So this is a rough sketch of what psychologists mean when they talk about splitting and projection. This is on a personal, individual, internal level. But here's the thing. Researchers have shown that this phenomenon, splitting and projection, as originally understood on a personal, individual level, can also be seen among groups of people. Sometimes entire groups of people can practice splitting and projection. When bad things happen to our group, splitting and projection can occur among an entire group or subculture. An entire culture can sometimes practice splitting and projection. An entire subset of people within a culture where the preservation of self-respect might lead us to project the bad that we see in our group onto another group. We are good. They are bad. We are innocent. They are guilty. Good things are failing to happen to us because someone is preventing these good things from happening. The devil, Satan, the infidel, the antichrist, even maybe, maybe it's God who is punishing the many, which would include our innocent group, because of the wickedness of those other people in the guilty group. Splitting and projection. And all of this may be wrapped up in religious language, but this is not actually theology at work. This is actually a structure of thought that is the legacy of early childhood development. We are good they are bad. Bad things are happening because the bad people are doing them to us, whether directly or indirectly. What we see but refuse to accept as true about our group, we split from, disassociate from, and then project onto another group. It's not we who are greedy, it's them. It's not we who desire to control the banks of the world, it's them. It's not we who wish to force our way of life upon others, it's them, right? This is the classic paradigm of splitting and projection, but now practiced not on a single individual level, but now being practiced by the group. 
and it flows from the toxic fountain of dualism. That is the tendency to see people as either entirely good or entirely bad. And so when an entire group suffers under the fog of pathological dualism, then splitting and projection very often becomes rampant. Now we've got a couple more steps to go in this flow of thought, but let's pause here for just a moment for a little bit of a reality check, okay? Um, in truth, what's actually reality is that all of us are actually both. Isn't that true? In truth, the reality is all of us possess both virtue and vice within ourselves. Isn't that right? Someone said it really well and said, the line between good and evil runs down the center of each of us. Yeah, this is the reality. It's difficult to hold together in our minds, particularly in stressful or anxious times. It's difficult to hold this together, but it is essential to do so because the alternative, as we've seen already, is catastrophic. In the Bible, you, I'm sure you've recognized this, but in the Bible, isn't it true that I'm going to say every character displays this both and reality of our humanity, right? Virtue and vice. Think about it. Just a quick tour. Abraham lies. Um, Jacob practices favoritism among both his wives and his children. Joseph needles his brothers with his favored status uh, among his siblings. Moses loses his temper. David commits adultery and then commits murder in an attempt to cover his tracks. I mean, on and on and on. This pattern is everywhere in the biblical narrative. These characters in Scripture portray, demonstrate for us this reality of our humanness, both good and bad, living in the same person, in the same soul. In fact, some have, and you may be aware of this, but some have charged that the Bible is actually an immoral book precisely because of this dynamic of moral ambivalence and inconsistency among its hallmark characters. Uh, but the reality is that just the opposite is the case. The Bible is immaculately moral because it reminds us again and again and again that the real battle for goodness in the world is within ourselves. It's not out there somewhere in those bad people. No, the real battle for goodness in the world is in our very own souls. Okay, so but that's splitting and projection. Splitting and projection prevents us from seeing all of that richness and reality. It is to be stuck in this underdeveloped stage of moral maturity and development. So that's the first stage that flows from this poisonous fountain of dualism. The second, second stage, I'm saying stage. I don't know if these should be thought of as stages or like inter intermingling dynamics. I'm not sure. Um, but let's talk about dehumanization. The next step toward altruistic evil, committing evil in the name of a noble cause, is dehumanization. Think about this. You know the phrase crimes against humanity? There's a great irony in that phrase. Because historically, if you look back, um, what you find is that the great crimes 
are committed against those whom you don't see as sharing your humanity, which is part of what enables an otherwise normal person to commit the great crimes against humanity. Once the opposing group is identified, if, if the members of that group can be converted into something less than human, then there are now far fewer obstacles in the path toward practicing hate toward the members of that group, including committing violence against them. And it, and it follows from pathological dualism that if a group can be seen as entirely evil, then it's just a short step further to see them as not fully human at all, but rather something less than human. A few years ago, my sister uh, worked with a non-government relief agency in Africa, and um, she worked primarily in Kenya, which was uh, very near Rwanda, and this is during the time of the, I guess, genocide, you should call it, between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And to the Hutus, the Tutsis were cockroaches. They weren't even human beings. For the Nazis, the Jews were vermin, lice, parasites, a cancer that had to be removed, a diseased limb that had to be amputated. Hitler described the Jews as racial tuberculosis and that Germany must be immunized from their contamination. Something similar can be described as demonizing the members of the outgroup. Since they are entirely evil, they are less like humans and more like demons. So dehumanization, demonizing go together. Now let's pause here for a moment. I want to ask you to answer not out loud, but just ask the question internally. Can you think of modern examples of dehumanization or of demonization in today's public discourse, whether in politics, social media, etc.? Those aren't people. They are deplorables. Those are vicious people. They are animals, not really people. On and on it goes. You betcha. Dehumanization and even demonization continues. And so dehumanization is real and it is one piece of this poisonous cascade. Now, here's the logical follow-through um, after a thorough campaign of dehumanization. We are actually doing the world a favor by eliminating this population who are actually less than human and perhaps even demonic. There was a Nazi doctor in an extermination camp when he was asked how he could have done what he did in that extermination camp in light of his Hippocratic oath as a medical doctor. He replied like this, Out of respect for human life, I would remove a gangrenous appendix from, the diseased, from a diseased body. The Jew is the gangrenous appendix in the body of mankind. The human mind is capable of all manner of rationalization when these kinds of syndromes take over. Now, once again, let's pause for another reality check. What's actually true about every single human being? The ones that I like and the ones that I don't like. 
the ones that are like me and the ones that are not like me, the ones who think like me and live like me and the ones who don't think like me and live like me. What's true about them? Well, in Latin, it's called the imago dei. It means image of God. Every single person is created in the image of God and is to be esteemed as such. That's the way our sacred book begins. Lesson number one, it is to say, every human being is created in the image of God and is to be uh, ascribed with honor, dignity, worth, and value as such. Uh, coming forward from the origin of those ancient texts and back from our time today, well-known philosopher Immanuel Kant, he proposed really what amounts to is a, an irreligious version of the same thing in his view of ethics when he said that people should be treated as ends, not means, which is once again to say, once again, that every person is of enormous dignity, value, worth, and respect. That's the reality. But dehumanization uh, robs us of all of that. Here's the third and final piece in this cascade, this poisonous puzzle. Uh, let's talk a little bit about victimhood. All of these phenomena tend to occur more or less together. Victimhood. Here, the target group, what we've identified as the target out group, um, is not only guilty of what we fear might be true about ourselves, as splitting in projection would suggest. They are not only less than human, certainly not as human as we are, but in addition to that, now this target group is out to destroy us. We are victims of their evil aggression against us. We are good. They are bad. The bad always wants to destroy the good. And so we are altogether vulnerable to their aggression. And so now under this syndrome of self-perceived victimhood, the stage is set for us to understand our own violence against the target group, not as aggression per se, but rather as self-defense, because after all, we are the victims here. In reality, we're not seeking to harm anyone. We're merely protecting ourselves, our group, our way of life from the existential threat raised against us by that group of those people. They are the aggressors against us. We are merely acting in self-defense. This is the mentality of self-imposed victimhood. Now here's, think about this. If I can blame my behavior on someone else, then practically speaking, I can justify any behavior whatsoever. Blame bars the path to responsibility. And so under the cloak of victimhood, I no, no, I no longer need to wrestle with the burden of responsibility. I can merely assert that I am under threat, and so as a result, I must retaliate as a matter of mere self-defense. By the way, one of the telltale signs of victimhood having taken root uh, among a population is the inherent inconsistency 
that is part and parcel of the self-understanding of the victim. Right? So think about it. On the one hand, this group believes itself to be superior. We are a great people. We have a glorious destiny. We are the strong. We are the survivors. We are the victors. We are the good guys. And at the same time, this very same group is mortally threatened by this outgroup whom they insist are inferior to themselves. This outgroup, in other words, is simultaneously inferior to us and represents an existential threat to our very survival and existence. How can both of these two be true at the same time, you ask? Well, the answer is they can't be. It's the nature of self-deception that we are exploring here. Victimhood is one such self-deception. And so we have these three phenomenon that flow from the poisonous fountain of pathological dualism, splitting and projection, dehumanization and demonization goes along with that, and then victimhood. Now, again, as we kind of bring this thing in for, for a conclusion, as I said before, I'm asking you uh, to be open and creative with these ideas um, because ultimately uh, what's at stake here is um, identifying, and, and many times these are a matter of degree, and that's what I said about creativity. We have to employ some creativity here. These are a matter of degree. And so my prayer and my hope for you, for me, for, for all of us, um, is that as we see these phenomenon in more or less, greater or lesser degrees, that we would recognize, not so that we can be bossy in the lives of other people, but certainly so that we can recognize these tendencies and arrest them within ourselves so that we don't fall victim to these mentalities, mindsets, these phenomenon. So, with splitting and projection, dehumanization, and victimhood, now this threefold campaign to undermine the normal moral senses is complete. Through these threefold phenomenon, the ordinary moral sense that would normally and typically press upon me that this particular course of action is morally wrong, suddenly those moral senses have been melted away by this threefold campaign to undermine my own morality. And with that, the stage is set for committing altruistic evil. That is, committing evil in the name of higher ideals, evil in the name of a noble cause. But this raises another question. Um, these phenomena that we've discussed, these are not particularly religious. Splitting and projection, dehumanization, victimhood can be found among both religious people and irreligious people. So how is all this connected then uh, to violence among religious people in particular? It's a good question. And for that, we need to take one final step to fully prepare the stage for people of faith 
in the God of life to commit violence in his name. And that's what we're going to look at next week, the next final step that prepares the stage for altruistic evil. Now, I know that on one level, this is kind of dark. <laughs> this is kind of dark material. Um, and I get that. And I think in part that's why I delayed this study for some time. But everybody, there comes a time when we need to deal with these unpleasant topics. And so I'm convinced that um, even though, you know, um, this is rather dark material, I'm convinced that the payoff, if I could say it that way, uh, is easily worth it in terms of what is it that we are contributing to the public discourse. And, I mean, it comes down to communication with friends, social media, et cetera. What is it that we're contributing? And, again, my hope and my prayer for you and for me and for your family and for my family um, is that we would recognize these syndromes um, and not only not participate, but perhaps contribute to something better, something richer, something fuller, something more consistent with the God of love, the God of life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Uh